Several years ago, I was at the doctor just for a routine checkup, and the nurse was doing the typical stuff that you do when you get there. And part of the, the basic assessment she would do was to ask uh, about my mental health and my stress level. And she said, on a scale of one to 10, could you rate your stress level? One being no stress and 10 being very stressed. I thought about it for a second and I said, probably an eight. She said, oh no, that's really high. What do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. To which her response was, I wouldn't think that would be stressful. I would think that would be fun all the time. I love that you're laughing. Because my response to her was, you clearly don't go to church. <laughs> yes, indeed. And this, this was very, very pre-pandemic. So this was, it's only gone up since then. The reality is, being a parish pastor is a stressful gig. You don't know that at all, do you, Laura? <laughs> Just a little bit, right? <laughs> it is indeed a stressful gig. Again, pre-pandemic, the numbers were that 1,700 pastors left the ministry a month. Not a year, a month, 1,700 pastors go, nah. I'm going to do something else. In this year alone, this sort of pandemic sort of time, in the North Carolina Synod, seven pastors have resigned their call without having another call due to stress, anxiety, and burnout. The typical number for us is about one every 18 months, and we've had seven just in the last year, and there's another three who were kind of on the fence about maybe doing that. Now calm yourselves. This is not the part of the sermon where I go, nah, see ya. I am tired. I am exhausted. I am stressed out, but I'm good. The reality is church whether it's in a pandemic time or not, is stressful. And that stress isn't just felt by pastors and church professionals. That stress is felt by people in the pews as well. One of the headline-grabbing things that happened this year was the uh, Gallup poll that showed for the first time in the history of their tracking this since the 1930s, church membership has fallen below 50% in America. Less than 50% of Americans have a, hold membership in a house of worship, be that a church, a synagogue, a mosque, or anything else like that. Now, there are lots of reasons perhaps we could wrestle with about why that is the case, about why pastors are stressed out and leaving ministry, why parishioners are stressed out and leaving church and all the rest of that. Usually when we talk about that, we go, oh, people don't have time for God anymore. People are just too busy. People don't believe in things or, or our wider culture has pulled people away from God. Have you heard things like that? 
Now, all of those might very well be true. But who does that take the pressure off of when we say that those are the sole reasons why people check out of church? Oh, nobody wants to answer. It takes the pressure off of us and it puts the fault on somebody else. Again, it's kind of like, like Kai was saying, when you get in trouble for doing something, your go-to answer is, well, they made me do it. Someone else told me to do it. Blaming TV. Bla yeah, blaming TV, whatever it is. It's not my fault. The reality is, we have to start owning the fact that part of the reason people check out of church, whether it's pastor people or people sitting in the pew, it's a lot of peas there, isn't it? May very well be us. And I think one of the reasons why we do that is we don't fight very well. You ever notice that? You fight good? All right. Preston, do you want to teach a class on, on proper fighting technique here at Good Shepherd? All right, I love it. Okay, are we already got, we got a teacher and the first student, I like it. We like to take anything and everything and blow it way out of proportion, and while we're doing it, we are 100% convinced that who is on our side. Yeah. Which only makes us dig our heels in more. Let me tell you a story about when I was on internship. I did internship in Boone, North Carolina. Um, and if you've ever been to Boone, you know that the number of people there is significantly greater than the size of the roads. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, I mean, it's, it's bad now if you've been there recently, but uh, rewind almost 15 years ago, and it was 10 times worse. So the, the state came in to do this road widening project, which meant they had to buy, you know, strips of land and all that kind of stuff to expand the roads on. And they had a basic formula that, that showed them, you know, if you take this much land, it's this much money, and you plug it all together, and boom that's the amount of money that we give you. And there's a little wiggle room for discussion, that sort of thing. Well, we had one guy at Good, uh, not Good Shepherd, this is Good Shepherd, one guy at Grace, um, precious lamb of the Lord, let me tell you what. And he was just convinced that the state was hoodwinking us, that they weren't giving us what, we, uh, what was rightfully ours for the land. And this became a thing. It was talked about at coffee hours. It was whispered in hushed tones and pews. We had, I forget how many meetings to talk about what was probably a six foot strip of land on the front of the church. April about lost it every time I said, I'm going down to the church to have another meeting about the land. And she goes, this is the six-foot strip, right? This isn't the entire property of God's kingdom, right? I said, no, this is just the six-foot strip of land. It got so bad that they actually sent representatives from Raleigh. We had a huge meeting 
with, I think they had 20 people from Raleigh and we had 20 people from Grace here in this meeting. And the, 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 the guy who was really convinced that the church was getting hoodwinked gave a very impassioned uh, you know, speech about how the state was taking away church and da 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 I mean, you know, it was a thing, you know? And one super nerdy guy, nerdy people are the best, who probably worked in a back cubicle in the uh, in, in somewhere in Raleigh, said, can I see your math? So he pulled out his sheet of paper that he had done all of his math on with measuring the property and uh, the, the algorithm and all that kind of stuff. And he showed it to this super nerdy guy who sat there and looked over it for a couple minutes and very calmly said, you put a decimal in the wrong spot. First lesson, math is super important. So the number that the state was offering us was the right number all along. To which, as soon as he goes, you got the decimal in the wrong spot, the pastor, who is actually now the bishop of the North Carolina Senate, goes, I believe we'll take your offer now. And it finally all got put to bed. One decimal place... And the conviction that God is on my side led to a tremendous uproar in a congregation that lasted for months and darn near ended my marriage. <laughs> we are masters at doing this. And th this is a comical story we can, we can look at and laugh now. But if you think about it, whether it's the color of the church carpet or the proper order in which we light the candles or even bigger things that come down to what we believe and don't believe, we as church people, and that's not just Good Shepherd, that's church people collectively, don't fight well because we take our convictions and we pair with them the unwavering belief that God surely must hold on to my opinion. And so God is on whose side? My side. That's what we see going on in this reading from Amos. There's a dispute going on about where the proper location for the temple is. To put it short and sweet, some believed it was in the south, and some believed it was in the north. Now, I mean, we know that God really shows up in the south, right? <laughs> but they were having this ongoing fight, this dispute. God is clearly on my side and clearly not on your side. Now, in the Old Testament context, the side of the south won that dispute. The proper place of the temple was in the south. Although Jesus actually shows us an even deeper understanding that the proper place of the temple is wherever Jesus is. And so wherever two or three people are gathered, who is there? And what's there? The temple. So the temple can really kind of be a bit of a moving thing if you want. So really what you see going on in this Amos reading 
is everybody there is wrong except one person. Who's right? Yep. What was that, Preston? God. There you go. God. So the reality is you have your position, I have my position, and God has God's position. Now, sometimes your position might just match up with God's position. Good. But other times, it might not. So if it comes down between you and God, who's right? Oh, you shouldn't say that half-hearted now. Come on, that should be something you can really own there. So if it comes down to, to who's right, you or God, who's right? God, that's right. So God has a position on everything. God is actively involved in everything. We have our own positions and our own beliefs and our own angles on things. But I wonder if we spent as much time trying to connect with what God is up to, if we would have near as much time to fight. I mean, it's an interesting idea, isn't it? Think of all the time and energy we've spent on phones arguing about things. Did you see what so-and-so did in church? Oh my goodness. I mean, that never happens in church, does it? No, never. Now, does that, does that really benefit anything? No, it really doesn't. So perhaps our calling is to constantly be formed in the faith and to recognize this is going to be difficult i am glad you're all sitting down that we all can be wrong so let's let's try it here because this is a safe place to try things okay so repeat after me i can be Wrong. I like that y'all said that with, with nice gusto. <laughs> yeah, husbands and wives are looking to their, say that again. <laughs> That's the starting point of all of this, is recognizing that we don't know everything, that we don't always have the right answer, and that we can be wrong. And that extends literally to everything in life. Everything that you do and that you believe and you think, you have to acknowledge the possibility that you can be what? Wrong. Because that puts you in a position where you are always a lifelong learner. Now, it might be that the things you've always thought or believed or done are right, you may just not know why it is. You just kind of always did it that way. But you learn something more about it, and so you actually learn, what's, you learn why you believe that. Or it might be that what you've believed or thought or done your whole life has been wrong, and you just need to tweak your behavior a little bit. 
And that's where it gets a little bit difficult because sometimes we get kind of touchy when we think, oh, I've done this wrong my entire life. Does that mean I'm a bad person? No. It shows that you are a fantastic person, that no matter where you are at your point in life, you can still learn. You can still grow. Because really, when we boil it all down, that's what this faith thing is all about. It's believing in and following Jesus and recognizing that Jesus is Lord and who isn't? Us. And recognizing that we are constantly in a process of growing into being more like Jesus. And that doesn't stop. No matter if you are really, really young and little or you're really, really old, you've never fully arrived and gotten there. You've always got more to learn, more growth to do. And it all starts with a very simple acknowledgement that I can be. Amen.